Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing treatment of COPD. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, teacher fellow in emergency medicine. Once again, um, ED pharmacist Kanalka Hill is here. Good to be here again. Welcome back, Kanal. Thank you for coming to join us. Uh, you've previously come to talk to us uh, about treatment of hypertension. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at COPD. COPD. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Mm-hmm. This is, we're not so much looking at the emergency treatment um, of COPD, we're looking at the initiation of treatment on patients who've just been diagnosed with COPD. So Absolutely, again, it's yeah. a primary care yep. setting. Very much primary care. Or medics picking this up maybe on the ward. Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, at this point, um, I draw your attention to the previous Take Orally podcast on COPD uh, with uh, myself and uh, Charlie Peel, where we go through the emergency management of COPD, uh, discussing nebulizers, intravenous steroids, and um, non-invasive ventilation. So please go to to there for for more on that and, and more on the diagnosis of COPD in that podcast as well. Right then, so um, the guidelines we're looking at here, you have our very own trust guidelines in front of you as Absolutely, well, yeah. and I've got the, the NICE guidelines, uh, CG101, Yes. Uh, which I think they're, they're very, I think our guidelines are very much based on these, yeah, these NICE guidelines. Yeah, that's pretty much there, yeah. Um, so very much talking about the, the, the diagnosis of, of COPD, uh, and I think front and centre in here, before we're even doing anything else, stop smoking. Stop smoking, absolutely. If, the, if there's one intervention before you even try and pick up your pen to prescribe anything um, for your patient with potential COPD is to, to stop smoking. Um, in terms of, I mean, we, there's some evidence that we've got locally um, saying just putting that as an intervention is the most cost effective and getting the most amount of benefit long term for these patients. So as soon as you think COPD, we should be thinking about NRT and encouraging your patients to stop smoking. Um, and it's always a difficult conversation. Um, patients could have been smoking for absolutely yonks, which is potentially the reason they've got COPD. Yep. Um, so putting a lot of effort into that initial phase um, of, of trying to get them to stop smoking mm. is going to do a lot more mm. good mm. than starting to use very clever inhalers and clever sure. therapies down the line. Mm. So I think the, the key point to start with with your COPD patient is to think about stopping smoking, get a good effective way that works for that patient um, off the fags and, <laughs> and starting, to, um, starting to reduce their, well, reduce their smoking amounts and then hopefully get them off it altogether. Um, there's a lot of evidence about a year down the line, five years down the line, ten years down the line, they can get some, they can, get some, they can re- regain some of their pulmonary function and their risk of deterioration goes down massively. Mm. Um, so I've got some evidence here. Um, There's some guidance that was made by the London Respiratory Team where they looked at qualities gained um, and stopping smoking, um, even potentially with pharmacotherapy or not pharmacotherapy, um, costs about £2,000 a quality, which is, if you know anything about qualities, that's very cheap for a quality, quality in that patient profile. Um, mm. When you're going up to very clever interventions, you could end up spending twenty to £30,000 per quality on these things. So it's a no-brainer is, is trying your best to get them to stop smoking and you know yes they've damaged their lungs but it's not you know it's not, not, not just thinking 
you know, oh, you've damaged your lungs, mm, you may as well carry on smoking. No, stop, you will get some benefit. Yeah, I mean, it's, on, it's in the psychology of patients, unfortunately. When you, when you talk to patients like this, they do feel like they've got the diagnosis and they've, um, mm. they're often quite actually quite, quite guilty about it. Um, and they don't see the benefit of stopping at that point. It's kind of like, well, I've got it now, so I might as well continue and continue yeah. on the drugs. Um, it's, it's getting that mindset out and, and educating the patients about, mm. um, about the benefit that they can sure. still be. And that's putting the cancer risk to one side as well, Absolutely, not just COPD. Yeah. You mean you, you can still let this other cancer yeah. risk. Right then, so our patient has stopped smoking. Excellent. They've been good, but they're still getting breathless quite a lot, and it's affecting their, their day-to-day activity. Sure. Um, so nice guidelines mentions then as, the, as first line to introduce um, inhaled therapy, um, a short-acting beta-2 agonist yeah, um, absolutely. or a short-acting muscarinic antagonist. That's right, yeah. So, so nice doesn't necessarily uh, differentiate between which one you want to use. Um, there's some local guidelines about which one you might want to use in, and the side effect profile for the patients. Um, so these two drugs, there's, there's the, we'll start with the, the SABAs as we call them, so the short-acting beta-2 agonists. Um, so this is a sympathomimetic agent inhaled. Um, so it's going to act by agonizing beta receptors in the lung. Um, and as a result, you're going to get uh, bronchodilation. Mm. Um, so idea being that they can get more puff into their lungs um, with that. Um, salbutamol is the, is, is the first choice agent we usually use, which has been around for Yonks. Ventolin is the brand name. Um, and this is a quick-acting inhaler that you can use um, whenever needed, effectively. Um, for, for periods of breathlessness, and we can even advise patients to, to use it with COPD before they're going to expose themselves to situations where they might get an exacerbation. So if they're trying to go to the gym, go for a long walk, um, going even into a dusty environment or mm-hmm. something like that, um, we can encourage them to take it beforehand to preempt it and also to, to relieve it. Um, the other, the other um, short-acting beta agonist is a drug called tabutinin, um, Bricanil is the brand name. Again, very similar to salbutamol in how, in how it works. Slightly different preparation, um, so it's a dry powder inhaler rather than a, a metered dose inhaler. Sure. Um, which we'll talk a little bit about um, in, in a little while about the inhaler devices. Um, either are, are an option and it's very much sort of giving the patient the option um, to give them a device that they can use most easily and they feel most comfortable with. Mm. Um, now, if we talk a bit about the, the, the short-acting um, beta-2 agonists, um, obviously bronchodilation is what we're, what we're going for. Unfortunately, they're not perfectly discriminatory for the, for the respiratory tract, so there'll be some level of absorption sure. into the bloodstream through the lung. Uh, and as a result, there are potentially some cardiac side effects that you have to warn patients to look out for, and potentially some peripheral ones as well. So a, a classic side effect of using a salbutamol inhaler um, would be a, would be a potentially a tachycardia. Yeah, it makes the heart race because it is a sympathomimetic, so it's going to potentially increase sympathetic drive. Um, equally, um, you can potentially get some action into the periphery, so a fine tremor is also quite common with salbutamol use. Now, neither of these would be um, reasons to stop using the inhaler. The 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 benefit of using it to open up the lungs far outweighs this tachycardia. Um, or, or, the, or the peripheral tremor. If um, we're starting to use these drugs in patients that are predisposed to arrhythmias or diagnosed with arrhythmias, um, or where the tremor is getting so bad that it's affecting day-to-day function, um, then we should be thinking about maybe reviewing it and using something else. Um, 
that would be the, they're the sort of key side effects. There's no specific contraindications for, for using these inhalers because the benefit is so high usually. Yeah. Uh, and it's not necessarily something they're using constantly. And, and usually, obviously, the more they use it, the, um, the more the side effects will, will, will come out effectively. Um, so we talked a bit of the, the those are the, the beta 2 agonists. We, we mentioned the short-acting anti-muscarinics. The SAMRs. SAMRs, yeah, SAMRs, as we know them as. So there's only one um, one drug that we use at the moment for that, um, which is a drug called Iprotropium. Uh, the brand name is called Atrovent, um, which is a metered dose inhaler. Um, it's it's got a similar mechanism of action in terms of what we're trying to do, uh, of how it works in the lung. Anti-muscarinic action will work on the smooth muscle yeah. in the um, in the lung, um, and it will cause relaxation of the smooth yeah. muscle, and thus you'll get some bronchodilation. There is one little additional benefit, which is why some clinicians will prefer to offer it first line, which is being an anti-muscarinic, um, it will tend to dry dry you up. So a classic side effect of, of the atropines and all the anti-muscarinic agents is you'll get um, a decrease in secretions. So classically saliva, but in the lung, we're gonna get potentially some mucus suppression, which for your COPD patient who might have a bronchitis mm. uh, or, or quite thick mucus, because they quite classically will have a, a chronic cough, drying that up will actually give them some extra symptom benefit. Um, there is a toss up for that, because also they might get some uh, orophangial, um, sort of in there, they might get a bit of dry mouth, mm. um, can sometimes give you more, um, it gives you a slightly higher risk of getting oral thrush and things like this. Sure. And some patients don't like that, um, which which can be a, a, a toss up. But it is another option to be able to consider um, two puffs up to four times a day. And those those can be used together. You can. So some it, it's to be to be honest, I haven't seen too many patients that use both. I have seen patients have access to both of them. Mm. So you might find that your COPD patient would prefer to use. A summer mm. when they're when they've got more of a cough that's productive because it helps with that mucus secretion. Mm. Whereas when they're outside and they feel more of a breathless situation, they might prefer um, a, salbut a salbutamol inhaler or something like that. Mm. Um, you can. Th there's no reason you couldn't use them together. Um, mm. You would worry that you haven't optimized them for either one if they're having to use them together regularly. Okay. Um, yeah. So those will be the two sort of short-acting. Um, agents that they can use as and when they need. Okay, so those are our short acting, what about our longer acting? So longer acting, so yeah, we'd, we'd then move on to the, what we call the labbers and the lammers. So in terms of their mechanism of action, identical to what we just said um, about how they work in terms of their bronchodilation. Um, we start off with the labbers, um, so the two classic ones, there's, there's a, a multitude of new inhalers and new novel drugs that are coming out. Um, and I, I won't try and talk about all of them, but the two classic ones that most patients are on are, are salmeterol, mm -hmm. which is one of the constituent ingredients in serotide, which is one of the one of the combination products that's quite well known, um, or the other one being formoterol, which is one of the constituent products in Simbacol, which is another quite classic one. Um, usually twice a day, um, so they've got, they will sit in the, the way the chemical structure is versus salbutamol, is they've got a very long side chain, which means they sit in pulmonary tissue and they sit on that receptor and, and bronchodilate for a longer period of time. So usually it's one or two puffs of that twice a day. Um, you have to be a little bit careful in terms of combination inhalers because these are classically in combinations, but you can get them as um, monotherapy for inhalers. Sure. So once we're putting patients onto a, a new step or um, increasing them, um, we're trying to get them one inhaler wherever possible. Um, 
which helps them in terms of compliance. There's some evidence to say that that's better for compliance. Um, there's a couple of new novel ones, things like um, Oladaterol and, and a couple of other new labbers that are coming out, but we, we won't talk too much about them. They've got a very similar clinical profile. Okay. Um, should we talk? Should we talk about when we go when we go to the labber? Yeah. Should we talk yeah, about that? Yeah. Let's, let's do that, and then we can uh, come on to the other the other drugs. So, effectively, we're looking at the nice criteria. So yeah, so nice criteria mentioned that um, basically it's all about their FEV1. Yeah. So if you've got a patient who um, is taking the the short acting inhalers. Uh, is remaining breathless, getting frequent exacerbations, um, you uh, think about them moving on to the longer treatment. So sure. you, you measure their FEV1. And if it is equal to or greater than 50% of the predicted, uh, you're going to start a, a, a LABA or a LAMA. That's right. Um, if their FEV1 is less than 50%, um, you will start a, uh, a LABA uh, with an inhaled corticosteroid in a combination inhaler or uh, a LAMA. So it, it's looking at, are they still breathless on the on the initial treatment? Are they still getting frequent exacerbations? Sure. Measuring their FEV1. Yeah, so this is very much about breathlessness rather than say exacerbations. So this is sort of the normal day-to-day -day, um, functioning. Uh, mm. and, it, and it makes logical sense, doesn't it? If somebody's having to use their short acting very often, why not give them a long acting? It's gonna help them out in the long run. Um, so we talked about the LABAs, um, the, the salmitrol and the formortrol. Um, the lammers um, are the ones that are kind of the new kids on the block to a certain extent. Um, they're the, the newest of the, the novel therapies. Um, the one most people will be familiar with is something called tiotropium mm. spiriva, um, which is um, a clever little device where you put a capsule in and you crush it. And it's, it's actually quite an old fashioned product, but people, people quite like it. Um, it's a once a day preparation, which again is really useful, um, which is actually a reason that quite often they're these days preferred over the LABA as your first intervention for a long-acting product. So tiotropium is quite high up the list um, of, of what will start as an initial therapy. Um, do have to mention though, obviously, it is, a, um, it is an anti-muscarinic and you are gonna get some absorption, like we said with the salbutamol beforehand. Sure. So even though it's not particularly contraindicated in anything, um, I think if you've got very bad renal function, you have to be careful using it because it can accumulate. Um, but if you've got effects, um, things like glaucoma, um, where you can't tolerate antimoscarinics, you have to be careful in starting this. Um, also, it's important to note, we will not routinely give people a LAMA and a SAMA together. So we said before about SAMA, the protropium being an option. Um, if you put somebody on a, a LAMA, it negates the need for a, a SAMA. Okay. Because you are literally hitting the same receptor. Um, so if you give somebody tiotropium and then they start using iprotropium on top of that for exacerbations, um, it's going to be very ineffective because you've already you've already done that. Mm, yeah. So at that point, you're using two different drugs. So once you've got them on the on the LAMA, um, they should probably be using a SABA to supplement that if they need it. Okay. Um, so we've we've looked there really at our uh, beta uh, beta two um, agonists. We've looked at antimuscarinics. Uh, nice. We just sort of mentioned they're talking about steroids as well. Yeah. So shall we sort of move on to to other drugs that we can use now? Absolutely. Yeah. So the last sort of main main inhaled therapy that you're going to throw on top of uh, on top of this 
Um, so obviously the lammer and the the lammer and the labber are your first longer term intervention, um, and then you'll be considering a, an inhaled steroid if there's frequent exacerbations. I think is the quite mm. classic reason. Um, so when we're talking about the steroids, generally speaking, we don't use um, steroid inhaled steroids on their own. They become a combination product. Yeah. So you wouldn't usually see a COPD patient on a monotherapy with an inhaled corticosteroid. It should be in combination with a LABA or a LAMA at that point, um, usually a LABA. Mm. So the, the classic products we have for that are, um, there's um, Ceratide, which is probably the most well-known um, well product, which is a combination of a LABA, Salmetrol, with um, a corticosteroid, fluticasone. Um, there's a couple of different agents as well. So there's Simbacort, um, Budesonide with Formortrol. And the other one that we use quite a lot of is something called Foster, um, which is Bethazone and Formotrol. Um, so once you're using steroids, the idea is to prevent mm. exacerbations coming in the future. And there, there is a little bit of evidence about saying that it can reduce that, um, but there is also a bit of evidence to say that long-term use of these inhaled steroids can start causing problems with pneumonias. Mm. Um, and that's where we have to review the therapy long-term if they're getting lots and lots of pneumonias whilst on, on corticosteroids. Because you're immunosuppressing the respiratory yeah. trip. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, key thing with um, with these products is, again, consider highly the patient choice about the device. That's yeah. going to mainly govern your which product you're going to pick. Um, and introducing a steroid, some of these preparations can have quite potent amounts of inhaled steroid in them. And again, we've said before, we can have some absorption systemically from the lung. So you're going to potentially give a lot of steroid to these people, um, a significant amounts. So you have to consider the long-term effects of steroids, yeah. withdrawing abruptly, um, even sometimes thinking long-term about calcium supplementation and things like that. Um, the classic thing that will counsel for steroids would be um, steroid deposition in the mouth and the throat is going to increase your risk of having oral thrush. So when people are using these products, we would tell them to rinse their mouth out with a bit of mouthwash or even, even a little bit of water, which will reduce that risk massively. Um, important to note with the steroids is, because of the way the preparations are, um, steroids are not always equivalent. So an example would be um, a clenial inhaler, which is a beclomethasone inhaler. Um, you wouldn't necessarily use that in COPD. Um, now there's beclomethasone in Foster, which is its, its steroid, but it's not dose equivalent with the, with the clenial. It's, the particles are smaller, so you get a more potent effect. Mm. So when you're considering how much of your dose to prescribe, make sure you're considering that per the brand and, and the particle size that okay. you're using. Um, various other um, newer products coming out into the, into the arena. There's things like Relvar, um, Anoro, and things like this. Um, we won't talk about too much because there's so many different types of inhale, we can't get through all of them. <laughs> um, but it's very much on that patient, uh, patient choice. Sure. And um, assessing inhaler technique the whole time, I imagine, making sure yeah. our patients is, you know, show me how you take it. It's, yeah, I mean, inhaler technique is, is the single, as, as a pharmacist, this is very much um, my area is, is teaching patients how to use their inhalers. So inhalers, unfortunately, aren't ideal in terms of patients don't generally use them very well. That's why there's so many different types. Um, so when you do prescribe the inhaler, it's incredibly important to teach them how to use it and make sure they're happy and able to use it. Um, so we'll talk a bit about inhalers. Um, 
there's four main types altogether. This is how I, I group them. Um, so there's what we call the metered dose inhaler, um, which is your sort of um, your one that you press down on and it puffs out a cloud, yeah. um, your classic Ventolin inhaler. Um, probably the most prevalent type of inhaler that we have um, and probably the most difficult to use um, out of all of them. There's a high velocity coming out of that inhaler and you have to coordinate breathing very, very carefully to be able to get that dose into your lung. It's actually an incredibly difficult thing to do. But the doctors, pharmacists, nurses are not very good at doing it themselves, let alone being able to counsel on it. Um, they're, a, they're a good choice in your patient that doesn't have very good um, respiratory effort. So in terms of not able to take a quick, sharp breath, um, somebody that breathes quite gently, they're a good choice because the, the velocity of the, the particles comes out of the inhaler. You don't have to make that yourself. Um, so the classic thing um, with these is, is slow and steady intake of breath. So when people are taking these, these inhalers, they need to breathe quite breathe all the way out before they take it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when the inhaler's going off, they need to inhale very slowly and very steadily to be able to get proper deposition into the lung. Um, we can increase the efficiency of these inhalers massively by prescribing a spacer with them. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of evidence to say that using these with spacers gets better outcomes. Patients are better at doing them. Not all patients enjoy using a spacer because they're a bit big and cumbersome. Mm. Um, but we've got some good spacers now that are nice and compact um, that we can use, and that gives you a, a barrier which slows the velocity of the the inhaled particles coming out um, and stops it from hitting the back of the throat and lets you inhale it more more easily. Um, so that's your classic type inhaler, your sort of point and push inhaler. The other type of inhaler, main type of inhaler, is what we call a dry powder inhaler. Um, so this is literally, there's no uh, propellant in the inhaler itself. It relies on the patient, their inhaling effort to be able to get the drug into the lung. Sure. Um, your classic example of this would be something like a Simbacort inhaler, yeah. or a turbo inhaler, um, or a serotide accuhaler, which is sort of the flying saucer looking one. Um, so those ones, once they're primed properly, and there's various different ways to prime them, um, some of them can be a twist, some of them can actually be unit dose, um, is that they have to take quite a quick, sharp, big inspiratory effort to be able to break up that dry powder and get it appropriately into the lung. Probably slightly higher risk of also de depositing in the mouth in terms of steroids, so you have to be a bit careful with getting them to, to rinse out. So they're quite good for your, pa your younger patient uh, who's got good respiratory effort. Um, generally, they don't tend to be as good for patients that they can't, they can't draw that short, sharp breath. Sure. Um, so that's your two classic types of inhalers. The, the new two subtypes that have come out um, is the, the older-fashioned single-capsule um, inhaler, mm. which is a type of dry powder inhaler. So that's like your Spiriva, the tiotropium. Um, would be literally a capsule that looks like a capsule you'd swallow, which can be a big problem because I've had plenty of patients that have been prescribed Spiriva and are taking them orally when they should be putting them into a device and now oh, yeah. slapping them. Uh, yeah, we, we can laugh, but it's, it's really important because they, have, they weren't told. And, yeah. um, they weren't told and they don't know, and it looks like a little capsule you swallow, so um, yeah. they can be forgiven. Um, so the, the capsule is literally put into a device, a handy hailer. Um, there's a button to snap that capsule to bring the powder out, and then they'd need that short, sharp, um, powerful drawing of breath to be able to get it into the lung. Um, this can be a bit fiddly for your older patients, so think about your patients with osteoarthritis, um, 
things where they can't manipulate small things, uh, they might not be a very good option in that patient class. Um, few other examples of, of, of those capsule type inhalers as well, but the, the classics being Spiriva. Um, the last one um, being what we call a Respimat inhaler, which you don't see as much of, but is actually quite a clever type of inhaler. Um, that is a inhaler that causes a fine mist of particles, really slow moving fine mist. Um, and the classic one is Spiriva Respimat. Um, the idea of that being that it's really slow moving, it's very easy to slowly and steadily inhale it in. Um, they can be quite tricky to use um, in terms of they've got a clicking mechanism and a releasing mechanism. Um, and so if we are using that with patients, we've got to make sure that they're absolutely comfortable using it and they, they know how to inhale it. Um, mm. You don't see too many of those um, generally, but it is an option for, for people that don't, again, have that inspiratory effort. Nice mentions about oral corticosteroids, basically saying maintenance not usually recommended. Yeah. Um, basically for, for risks of adrenal suppression, osteoporosis. So if there is a maintenance dose, want to keep it as low as possible. Um, I know a lot of patients do have a rescue dose of yep. steroids if they feel an infective exacerbation, like they'll have a rescue dose of an antibiotic like doxycycline to take. Absolutely. Uh, and patients may be discharged with a short course, of, but maintenance dose, not really recommended. Sure. Um, and then it um, moves on to mentioning um, a word which is always fun to say, uh, theophylline. Theophylline. <laughs> uh, oral theophylline, um, only to be used if uh, the uh, trial of sabers uh, and labbers has, has not really worked or if the patient is um, unable to use inhaled therapy. Yeah, I mean, when, when we're getting into theophylline territory, so when we talk about theophylline, um, it's what we call a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, a xanthine derivative. It's got a very, very complicated mechanism of action, but for all intents and purposes, it is a bronchodilator, yeah. an oral bronchodilator. Um, it's not a very pleasant drug to use because it's got a very narrow therapeutic index. And um, because of that narrow therapeutic index, um, it's got a very small window um, of dosing where you've got efficacy. So it's, if you're below that, you're going to get, um, it's not going to be very effective. And if you're above that, you're going to get toxic symptoms and it can potentially be quite toxic. Um, when you're starting to start theophylline with these patients, um, you're getting to the stage where they're becoming quite refractory for all treatments. Um, they potentially need levels um, doing periodically after they take it. Um, and one of, the, one of the real problems with theophylline is that it actually interacts with tobacco which is quite a, it's, it's quite an interesting one. So um, your patient that smokes, potentially a COPD patient, might be a slightly higher risk of smoking. Um, smoking actually reduces the offline levels in the blood All right. um, via a very complicated metabolic mechanism. Um, now the problem is that that can vary from day to day. Mm. So a patient one day might smoke 20 mm. uh, and the next day not feel like smoking at all. And it can actually mean they're, they're Theophylline levels in their plasma go for a roller coaster ride, um, and perish. Unfortunately, the biggest problem, which is not a problem per se, but if your patient stops smoking mm. and is maintained on the same dose of theoph theophylline, because that's not suppressing the levels, they'll end up going toxic. So there's a lot of very careful things to be to be looked at with um, with theophylline, and, and the other drug is aminophylline, which is a, a, a salt of theophylline as well. Um, it's only really usually going to be recommended by specialists um, at that point because it's when you're very refractory to, to inhale therapies. Mm. Um, if you are dealing with it, just be very careful with its toxic effects and um, 
monitoring in terms of levels and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and so another drug, that, another class of drugs that we we'll sort of gloss over a little bit here um, are the, the mucolytics as well. So you already mentioned about um, the antimuscarinics having a suppressive effect on yes, mucus. That's right, yeah. But that these may be for further patients who are who are you know having a chronic cough with yeah. sputum. So you should get to, you will get some effect on this mucus production in the lung if they're on a lama, mm. um, which which should sort of be your your first line intervention. But this is very much a symptomatic kind of um, treatment. So the the drug we use is something called carbocysteine, um, which is a what we call a mucolytic. So it's it's going to thin out and, and break up some of that mucus. So for your COPD patients, as we say, the, the blue bloaters who are your bronchitis kind of heavy mucus production, symptomatically they can find that taking this carbocysteine improves their function a little bit. The the evidence isn't sort of brilliant for it from my understanding, um, but from a risk benefit point of view, it's a, it's a well tolerated drug. Um, it, it's got a very small side effect profile. Um, and so it is something, again, we can throw in later on. Um, another, another potential thing that's along the same lines is um, when we start using nebules at home, saline nebules, um, which are irritant to the respiratory tract, uh, and they'll encourage a cough. Um, so that's something, again, a, late, a later term intervention in COPD patients where they've got home nebs, for example. Sure. They might use, use saline nebs if they're very congested in their mm. chest and they need to bring some of that stuff up. Um, and it does potentially have some, some thinning properties as well. Mm. And, and like we've already mentioned, so we've already talked about patients may have uh, rescue antibiotics, they may have rescue steroids. Yep. Um, um, moving on, I suppose, we won't cover that here, but just to mention, as you've already mentioned, patients still struggling, this is where nebulizers, home oxygen comes into it as well. Yeah, I mean... Specialist nurse input, specialist um, hospital you know, consultant input as absolutely. well at that point. It's, I mean, at that sort of point when you're on the home nebs and the home oxygen, we, we are, it's very important to remember that COPD, when it's getting to that, is, is a palliative condition. Yeah. It's, it's not a condition that at that point is going to get any better. It, it's, it revolves around symptom, symptom management. Um, so there's various things that we can do sort of later on. The, the rescue antibiotics and the rescue steroids, um, there's good evidence for them, but the evidence are, is about stopping patient, patients coming in from hospital unnecessarily. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, as we know, in hospital, we've got lots of potentially nasty pathogens. Um, patients don't do well in hospital. Um, and if we can keep COPD patients out of hospital, that is always the best thing to do. Um, they can end up picking up bugs in their, in their lungs that become quite difficult to treat. Um, one of the options, as we say, is the, is the rescue antibiotics. These patients know very, very early on, if they've had the disease for a while, um, when they're getting an exacerbation, yeah. and they can, it gives them the control to be able to treat themselves. And there's usually, when we start that, um, that process of um, self-starting antibiotics and steroids, they need to be very well, con well uh, educated to what the symptoms are to start it. Sure. Um, the other thing would be that there's various other potential treatments, so we can put people on prophylactic antibiotics. Mm. Um, so azithromycin is, is a drug that there's some evidence for. Um, we, we could prescribe that um, up to three times a week, and it has both a antibiotic sort of prophylaxis effect, as well as having a potential anti-inflammatory effect on the lung as well. So you might find some patients uh, okay. are taking regular azithromycin for, for prevention as well. Um, but at that point, that's quite quite down the line. Okay. 
Um, and it also mentions here in NICE um, not to give antitussives. So if you've got a patient with a, a stable COPD, don't give them anything that's going to suppress a cough. Yeah. So they was, should be clearing. Them. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, you, you do occasionally see it, um, and it's, it's actually a really important thing as a pharmacist, actually, because... Um, we get a lot of potential patients that with COPD and they come up to the counter asking for cough syrup. Um, and we, it, it's about education to say you really don't want to stop your cough reflex. It's going to make you worse. Um, short term, it might stop your cough because these patients potentially cough a lot. Um, but in the long term, antitussives are a, a real problem. So we should always try and avoid them in, in COPD. Brilliant. Any further information, Canal, or have we, uh, have we mastered COPD? It's a very difficult one because, as I say, there, there is a lot of different products and a lot of different potential routes of treatment for these mm. patients. Mm. So this is why we haven't, we've purposely not specifically gone into every single product and, um, yeah. and every single inhaler type and, and how you treat patients. Um, the take-home take message, I think, from this is once you've got a formal diagnosis of COPD, that lack of reversibility in the disease, um, do the simple things right first, get them to stop smoking, um, and the other thing we didn't touch on actually was get get um, immunizations done. I was about to say yeah. Yeah, flu flu vaccines, um, pneumococcal vaccines, things that were going to prevent them from getting um, problems with their chest because they're going to be at a higher risk of hospitalizations and mortality mm. because of that. Do the simple things well, um, and when you're starting to look at pharma pharmacological interventions with inhaled therapies, make sure you you give the patient something they can use and they understand how to use it. Um, make that be your key decision in what you're going to prescribe um, so you might think that this patient is very very will benefit from a lab up and their therapeutic profile will be excellent for that but you might find they just can't use the inhaler and mm. they don't like it mm. and they, they're getting on really well with the lama instead sure. make that be your key intervention sure. um, the devices often have got about three or four different formulations so for example Simbacort and Foster they come in a, in a metered dose inhaler they come in a dry powder inhaler um, various different strengths, so give them the product that they can use the best, educate them on how to use it, mm. um, and make sure, I think it's manage expectations of what they want in terms of their disease. Do they want to not go into hospital? Do they want to cure themselves of this disease? You have to be very clear with them, and so they understand what to expect, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the key thing is, is um, simple interventions first, and then yeah. govern your therapy patient-specifically. Yeah, um, so I mean, we, we, we didn't touch on pulmonary rehab, but that's something else that can be yeah, used. Yeah, non pharmacological so, intervention. So, yeah, so I mean, stop smoking. There are non pharmacological interventions like um, uh, pulmonary rehab, the um, interventions that we've talked about, um, the vaccinations as well, obviously, as, as, you, as you mentioned, um, and obviously noticing when these things aren't working and escalating appropriately. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much, Canal. That was the Take Orally uh, Treatment of COPD podcast. Uh, for more information, don't forget to check out www.takeorally.com. You can also find uh, Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities in emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.